This episode is intended as a prologue to a second episode that I have in the works, which will be concerned with the divinity of Jesus. Now, um, for anyone who's ever looked into the matter, um, it will have been apparent that there's not a whole lot of information, you know, that we have about the lives of Jesus or, you know, really too many other historical figures from the ancient world. And so whenever we have a situation where there's just a paucity of information, what inevitably happens is that uh, the, the little information which is available gets interpreted in light of uh, people's different, you might say, biases or frames or worldviews. Circular logic inevitably gets employed. Um, and I think that this is true even of our best um, secular historical critical uh, scholarship. I think that there's just an inevitable circularity to their logic, which renders all their findings um, unsatisfactory, not definitive. Granted, um, it seems like a reasonable assumption that when we're doing history, materialism should be the default presumption. You know, as Hume asked, uh, how often do we see, you know, the laws of nature actually getting violated? Uh, either the laws of physics were violated, which we've never seen happen, um, or some human is mistaken or lying. And so, yeah, at first glance, that seems like a reasonable um, bias to have as a historian. We should assume a, a deflationary account of who Jesus was, and we should assume that you know no miracles or or any sort of divine incarnation occurred uh, at that time. But in this episode, I'm going to show you how you can begin from another frame, uh, from first principles, not from faith at all. And, and I'm going to show you how actually materialism as one's sort of default assumption is really, really flawed. Um, and uh, really, it has to be replaced with what you might call theistic idealism. Or in this episode, as I, you know, almost always do, I'm going to be making reference to uh, the work of Christopher Langan, uh, the cognitive theoretic model of the universe. Um, where my ideas on ultimate reality are correct or convincing, they you know the credit for that should really be seen as going to the CTMU, and where my ideas are simplistic or wrong, just assume that you know the blame lies with me. I think that should suffice for attribution, hopefully. So in this little prologue, I'm going to be arguing four things: God exists; He is maximally loving. The message of the Gospels is pretty much what he would say if he were human, and uh, he does, in fact, do miracles. And in this episode, and what follows, I'm going to be arguing that if you accept these four claims, then that you know, shifts the calculus significantly um, uh, with respect to the available evidence on Jesus' divinity. Okay, claim one, uh, God exists, and um, I guess I'll include the claim that he is intelligent um, in this uh, 
first argument. So first question is, who can tell me what it means for a thing to exist in itself, for a thing to exist in an utterly mind-independent way? Um, anytime you ask this question, you're just going to get crickets. There's there's nothing that, that this phrase or, or statement can intelligibly mean. And if a statement is meaningless, we don't have to take it seriously. I'm trying to move fast in this episode, so I think I'll just leave it there. Unless someone can tell me what it actually means um, for a thing to exist in itself, unless someone can tell me how existence can be defined in a way that makes uh, neither explicit nor implicit reference to conscious perception, I think we just have to throw the idea away. And that really means that materialism is done right there, but I'm going to show you some other ways in which materialism is just radically unworkable. In the meantime, let me tell you what it does mean for something to exist. It means that, you know, it's perceived. So if we look at ultimate reality, um, here I'm thinking about the CTMU, if we look at ultimate reality or the totality of what is real, uh, the first thing that we can note is that all of it must be perceived. And it can't be perceived from outside ultimate reality because that's incoherent. So in some sense, some very broad sense, ultimate reality is necessarily self-perceiving at some level. Uh, really, it's going to sound like I'm jumping the gun here, but let me explain what I mean when I say that God exists necessarily. So assume that ultimate reality is a conscious and self-perceiving mind. Could this mind have just popped into existence from nothing? The answer is no. That's an operation. And that operation, in order to be real, um, it, it has to have occurred you know, inside some mind, a mind that was sort of pre-existing, the mind of God. You know, in the CTMU, um, God is defined on regression. The most ultimate reality is always God. The most ultimate mind in which some operation occurs is the mind of God. By the same token, God cannot exist and then cease to exist. If he were to tear himself down to zero, that's an operation, which in order to be real would have to occur inside some still more ultimate mind, which by definition would be the real mind of God. So, I mean, there are ways that um, what you might call theistic idealism, I'm not going to call the CTMU just idealism, I think it's a little bit more advanced and specific than that. But my position is sufficiently low resolution that it bears description as theistic idealism. Um, so, so just to clarify, my position is not original. Um, but it is sort of like a simplistic reduction of the CTMU. So it's not equivalent to the CTMU, but I'm at the same time, I'm not taking credit for it. Arguably, what I'm saying uh, could have all been found in Barclay. I'm, I'm not sure. I haven't read him very much. For me personally, I, I came by these ideas when I was trying to work through the CTMU and figure out what Langan meant um, by it. So theistic idealism is able to explain, you know, sort of how we get something from nothing in some sense, or really, it's able to explain, you know, why there is something rather than nothing. If pure nothingness 
unaccompanied by any something um, existed necessarily, it would be here, but it's not here. That is, something exists. Therefore, pure nothingness does not exist necessarily. Therefore, its negation exists necessarily. Although if you read the CTMU, you'll find out that sort of what ultimate reality is, is in some sense a union, a conjunction, a biconditional relationship between something and nothing, between uh, uh, constraint and freedom, two-valued logic and one-valued logic, respectively. But anyway, that's a little bit uh, beyond um, my purposes here. Let's give materialism the task of trying to explain how we got something from nothing. Um, well, what does it mean to say that first there was nothing and then the universe existed? Can we explain what it was for the universe to be nothing in itself, uh, you know, prior to the arrival of something or the occurrence of something? No, we can't even say what that means. Okay, so it didn't come from something. It came from something else. The multiverse. The universe came from the multiverse already. You know, we should notice that this is just a misuse of the term universe. The universe needs to encompass everything that is real. It properly needs to be seen as ultimate reality, but we have metaphysically illiterate scientists, you know, who have just been uh, treated as though they were the experts on metaphysics, and, and they do stuff like talk about multiverses, which is incoherent on its face. But anyway, let's humor them. The universe came from the multiverse. Where did the multiverse come from? At this point in the decision tree, I don't know which response is less satisfactory. Um, I think the worst response, but not by much, is to say that the multiverse caused itself. What do you mean by that? Again, we got to get into what things actually mean. We're not going to take meaningless statements seriously. And just to clarify, in case anyone thinks that what it means for an object to exist in itself is just whatever it means that, you know, when I close my eyes, uh, the tree that I was looking at is no longer visually apparent to me. But when I open my eyes again, the tree is there again. You know, look, when you try to, when you try to get down to what it means for that tree to exist, what you end up with is a syntactic rule of your conscious perceptions whose meaning is entirely dependent for its content upon your conscious perceptions. Um, this in no way implies that it's possible uh, to give some meaningful account of existence independent of conscious perceptions. Quite the opposite. So no one's saying that the tree is going to stop existing if you stop looking at it. No one's saying it's going to cease to be a regular feature of your conscious perceptions, you know, through time. No one's no one's saying that it's going to cease to be predictable, but I am saying that, you know, if you're going to maintain that a thing can exist in itself, you have to say what exist means there in a way that makes neither implicit nor explicit reference to conscious perception. Okay, so what could it mean to say that the multiverse caused itself? It sounds to me suspiciously like claiming that it temporally pre-existed itself. Now, my opponent here could say, well, look, the multiverse pre-exists 4D space-time. It's, it's, you know, prior to that. So it, it doesn't temporally pre-exist itself. Okay, fine. I'll take that. Um, but it sounds like you're saying that it, it, it is prior to space-time on some dimension. Let's call it dimension five. 
what it means for it to cause itself uh to me sounds suspiciously like saying that it pre-exists itself along dimension five it it doesn't work to say that you know it's prior to time understood as 4d space-time uh and therefore it can pre-exist itself because if you're saying it's prior you know you're saying it's prior along some dimension and then to say it caused itself on that dimension is still to imply self pre-existence along that dimension so that's not going to work that can't be what you mean but if that's not even what you're trying to mean then i don't know what it can possibly mean to say that the multiverse caused itself so let's throw that idea away Let's say that the multiverse was caused by a meta-multiverse. Let's go the Tower of Turtles route. What caused the meta-multiverse? The meta-meta-multiverse. And what caused the meta-meta-multiverse? The meta-meta-meta-multiverse, and so forth. Here's the important thing to notice here. Um, X hypothesi, the, meta, the, the multiverse or the universe, um, they exist contingently, that is, unless their cause exists, they don't exist. So there needs to be an ultimate or final cause that actually exists in this equation in order for any of its hypothesized effects to actually exist. If we can't say that some ultimate or final cause exists, um, then we have a, a contradiction at the level of asserting that the universe exists, but you know it exists only contingently, and its cause doesn't exist, therefore it does not exist. So now the question with respect to an infinite regress, you know, a hypothetical infinite regress of causes, is whether or not all the members of an infinite set can be real at once. Operative phrase here, at once. If they can, then we can uh, somewhat uh, inconceivably uh, speak of an ultimate cause uh, that exists at the end of an infinite series which accounts for the existence of the universe. I mean this should already clue you in that that there's there's no hope here but but let's be patient and and, and let's sort of uh, explore the the Hilbert Hotel thought experiment um, and and see what this means for you know whether or not, all the members of an infinite set can meaningfully be real at once. The Hilbert Hotel involves a hotel um, that has an infinite number of rooms. If we are to claim that all the members of an infinite set can meaningfully be real at once, that would mean that at time t, there is no vacancy in the hotel. Um, and then if a visitor comes, he's going to ask for a room. If you tell him there's no vacancy, um, it's not an infinite uh, hotel. So, okay, tell the guy in room one to get out and go into room two. Tell the guy in room two to get out and go into room three, rather than have the visitor walk uh, forever down uh, an infinite hallway. Um, problem solved, right? Well, no, because if you can add a room, that contradicts the idea that there was no vacancy. It contradicts the idea that all the members of the infinite set were truly real at once at time t. You can add a room at time u, but not at time t. So the implication here is that not all members of an infinite set can be real at once. 
In other words, an infinite totality is a contradiction in terms. In other words, infinity to be possible, to be meaningful, it has to be understood as a growing thing, an ever-expanding quantity. So here you might ask, well, can't we just keep adding causes forever? Isn't that a viable move? Um, so this is an operation. We're, we're adding cause upon cause upon cause. This set of operations is occurring in a mind. In whose mind, you know, are these operations occurring? We're doing these operations in order to explain the genesis of something from nothing. But in order, you know, to meaningfully talk about these operations, you know, we, we have to locate them in some mind. And that means that we're presupposing that something already exists. Okay, so what I mean when I say that God exists is that he's a self-perceiving mind. And what I mean when I say he exists necessarily is all the stuff I just said about the incoherence of supposing that uh, God could have not existed and then popped into existence because, you know, uh, if he didn't exist, then in, in whose mind is that operation occurring? Now I'm going to talk about uh, how God is necessarily intelligent. Um, you know, Barring an infinite regress, which we should bar it because it's actually logically incoherent. Um, it's logically incoherent if you, you know, try to use it as a basis, as a causal basis for some phenomenon, I mean. Barring an infinite regress, the only explanation for the existence of order and ultimate reality is that ultimate reality should be intelligent. You might say, no. Um, I know of uh, phenomena whereby order comes out of disorder. Let's look at that critically. What's your best example? Uh, Darwinian evolution. Okay, so the order in living organisms is greater um, than the order seen in the process whereby these organisms evolve. Darwinian evolution is hypothetically an unguided process. Um, therefore, you know, it doesn't have order, but the living organisms have order, uh, order from disorder, QED. Well, where did, I mean, I, I grant you that the living organisms proximately came from Darwinian evolution. Where did Darwinian evolution come from? came from the Big Bang, came from the fine-tuning of the constants. That's a whole lot of order. That's a lot more order than you see in living organisms. You've only heightened your explanatory debts. So where did the order of the Big Bang come from? It came from the, random, the randomness of a multiverse. Where did the multiverse come from? Whatever meta-multiverse that spat it out is hypothetically, you know, a much greater amount of order and stuff that you need to explain. This gets you nowhere. Ultimate reality is self-perceiving and it is intelligent. Um, now I'm gonna argue that it is maximally intelligent. And what do I mean by maximally intelligent? I mean that pattern-finding consciousnesses exist within ultimate reality. That much should be uh, inarguable. What I mean when I say that ultimate reality is maximally intelligent is that on some highest level, all the pattern-finding consciousnesses of ultimate reality are integrated. So um, again, uh, for God to be maximally intelligent means that 
all the various differentiated pattern-finding capacities found within ultimate reality are integrated together at some highest level of consciousness and or intelligence. It's not actually necessary for my claim that God be conscious. You can imagine him as a zombie God if you want. It really doesn't matter. I mean, it's really foolish to suppose that we would be conscious, um, but God wouldn't be. Uh, but I'm just saying if you insist on that view, it's not going to halt my argument. Maximal intelligence means, on some level, that there's no processing power that isn't being taken advantage of in ultimate reality. Now, why would God be maximally intelligent, or why should he be maximally intelligent? If God has a utility function, if God has what you might simplistically call a will, a set of preferences, um, then, you know, he's going to have to be maximally intelligent in order to maximize his own utility. Or, I mean, does he have to be? He can be. He's not constrained not to be. And if maximizing his utility is what he wants to do, you know, by definition, then he's going to be maximally intelligent in order to go about maximizing his utility. He's not constrained not to be. Again, in case it wasn't clear, when we're talking about ultimate reality, we're talking about an entity uh, around which or beyond which there are no external constraints of any kind. Okay, so now I'm resting a lot on the claim that God has a utility function, that he has a will. What do I mean by that, or how can I prove that? Well, the first thing to note about God is that, contrary to sort of what a lot of traditional theologians would say, um, he's not, the consciousness of God is not infinite, at least not at any given moment of time or higher dimensional time, meta time, if you will. And you might say, stop right there. Isn't God outside of time? Well, remember that God is a consciousness, um, and every consciousness, um, is subject to change to flow, to syntactic transformation. A static consciousness is an oxymoron. So as a result, every consciousness has some kind of um, temporal organizing grammar or structure. In the case of God, this uh, time uh, that he experiences is not some form of external time to which he is subject. It is rather uh, a form of time or meta time that he uh, generates and parametrizes internally with full creative control. Within this time, he can move and self-configure. At, an, at any given point in God's time, there is always more than one option that he has to choose from. In other words, for any given self-configuration of God's consciousness, um, in, or, in order for that configuration to be meaningfully defined, it must have a complement on which it is uh, defined. The thing about a logical complement is that it's always bigger than the predicate uh, that is defined on it.
There's a phrase, omnis determinatio es negatio, every determination is a negation. But what I would have you notice is that every determination implies many more negations than there are determinations. You know, if I have a mug sitting next to me, uh, there's a practically infinite number of other items that are excluded from sitting next to me in just that spot. The predicate is always, on some logical level, necessarily much smaller than its complement. I'm just going to have to leave it there because I don't have too much time in this episode. For any given self-configuration of God's consciousness, there's always more than one option that it has to choose from. Uh, there's nothing that's going to force its hand outside it. Remember, this is ultimate reality. It decides what its next, its next self-configuration is going to be. Um, now, here we have two options. Is it going to be like Buridan's ass, where the donkey looks at, you know, one pile of hay and another pile of hay, which are like qualitatively identical for some reason, and the donkey seeing no reason to prefer the first pile to the second pile just looks back and forth forever and starves? Um, remember that consciousness, in order to be what it is, it has to keep moving. It has to keep flowing and changing. It, it must continually undergo syntactic trans, uh, transformations. So, you know, the burden's ass scenario is not going to be played out because that would just uh, imply that consciousness sort of freezes and stands still. And again, static consciousness is no such thing. It's an oxymoron. So ultimate reality is going to choose or the consciousness, the defined part of ultimate reality is going to choose, you know, the undefined part, what Langan calls UBT, is also part of ultimate reality. I haven't always made that very clear in my previous videos. So ultimate reality is, is going to choose, is it going to choose A over B for absolutely no reason? Or is it going to have a principled basis for choosing A over B? Let's take the case in which um, ultimate reality chooses something for no reason. If that happens, we have a violation of the principle of sufficient reason. Basically, anytime the principle of sufficient reason is violated, you face the question of uh, why phenomena continue to be lawful when they don't have to be. In other words, if anything can happen at any time, then why doesn't it? The principle of sufficient reason actually always has to be in effect. But if the principle of sufficient reason can be violated in one context or at one point in time, because the principle of sufficient reason is actually flexible or negotiable, then what principled basis could we offer? For the principle of sufficient reason being violated only at that point in time or in that context why can't it be violated elsewhere so again if you think that a thing can exist or happen at some point in time uh, for no reason then you really have to face the question of uh, why doesn't anything happen at any time? 
why does reality uh, continue to be lawful at all times and in all ways? So ultimate reality, it has a basis for choosing one possible self-configuration over another. And that basis is just what I'm going to call its utility function. Again, I'm not claiming that it that ultimate reality's emotions or uh, utility have to feel like anything conscious consciously. This is separate from the hard problem of consciousness. We can assume or say or pretend that um, it doesn't feel like anything to be God. Although again, that idea is silly. By God having utility function, I just mean um, whatever basis it has, uh, whatever basis an intelligent, ultimate, uh, self-perceiving mind has for choosing, you know, one possible state over another. Okay, so here you might ask, um, uh, okay, you know, God is uh, intelligent, self-perceiving, ultimate reality, and he has reasons slash um, emotions or as-if emotions for doing what he does, motives, you know, for doing what he does. Um, how does it follow from any of this that God actually cares about me and if he, or, or about humankind or about any living organisms at all? And if he doesn't, then how is this any better um, than God not existing at all? Or it, put another way, if you can't prove that he cares about humans or any creatures, then it's as good as if, you know, you couldn't prove the existence of God at all, or as bad as if you couldn't. Okay, well, let me take up the challenge. Um, there's two ways we can do this. You can go from uh, man to God, the negative route. It's a little easier. Um, and that's what I'm going to uh, limit myself to doing. Um, I take the other harder route um, from God to man in episodes nine, and especially in episode 14. Um, but those are time consuming. So I'm going to stick to the negative approach. Um, I'm just going to ask, you know, why do we exist? There's two possibilities. God values us in his utility function, or he doesn't. Let's say he doesn't. Then why do we exist? Um, presumably as byproducts. Um, now the question is, what constraint exists upon God such that he cannot relax some hypothetically inflexible process to avoid creating something that he has no use for, something which he absolutely doesn't value? Why is he forced to create it? What rigid... Um, external rule is binding upon him? The answer, of course, is that there is no such rule. He's not forced um, to create anything which he doesn't have any use for. And he's intelligent, so he's presumably not going to create anything that he doesn't have any use for. Again, there are better arguments than this or more rigor rigorous arguments than this, but right now I'm, I'm having to just go the simple route. So, you know, we're not byproducts. Uh, so we are valued 
Now we have two choices again. Are we valued intrinsically or extrinsically? If we're valued intrinsically, that means something uh, a lot like, in fact, identical to the claim that God loves us, the claim that God values us as ends in ourselves. Um, let's not go that route because that would be begging the question. Let's say that God values us only extrinsically, only as a means to an end, only instrumentally. And notice what follows from that claim. If, if I value something, if I, if, if I value A, but only instrumentally, um, let's say I value it instrumentally to some good B, which I value intrinsically, it means that on some level, I don't really value A. I only value B. However, some constraint exists upon me such that I'm not able to realize B directly or immediately. I have to approach it in a roundabout way through A. I'm not tall enough to reach up to the apple. I have to get a ladder. But I don't really care about the ladder. I care about the apple. If I could snap my fingers and have the apple in my hand, I would do that. I wouldn't get the ladder. I don't, I don't just enjoy climbing the ladder for the sake of climbing the ladder. So if God values us only instrumentally uh, to some good, uh, to, to some other good which he values intrinsically, uh, what constraint exists upon God such that he's not able to access that uh, more ultimate good directly, immediately? Again, why is God constrained to make unnecessary moves? So I'm going to have to just leave it there and say that um, when you understand God properly as, as, as ultimate reality, then you understand that the only reason for our existence is that God values us intrinsically. Now, you might ask why he values us intrinsically. That's a very good question. Um, I wonder if I can or should devote a little time to answering that. But, but again, the, the, the positive... The positive answer to this question, the route going from God to man, I took in episodes 9, but but they're arguably not so well, more so in episode 14, but that is that is sort of prohibitively abstract, um, perhaps, for, for some people. Uh, the, the simple answer as to why God values us um, would be that we're something like God's nervous system. So now here's a question. Can an abstract or unembodied consciousness have a nervous system? Well, I would ask, if you emulate human consciousness on a computer, what are you emulating? Something abstract. But that abstract consciousness presumably still has the same, if you will, emotional architecture um, as uh, you know, the human consciousness that was running in the brain. So that virtual machine, that abstract consciousness that is that is uh, being emulated um, on the silicon hardware, it has a nervous system, or more correctly, it bears description as having a nervous system. So in episode fourteen, more or less, I argue that God is a virtual God is a consciousness, and that means he's a virtual machine. Because 
uh, or in the sense that his consciousness bears description as a virtual machine. It has structure. It's not what traditional theologians have called simple. As I explained in episode 11, simplicity is sort of inseparably connected with um, a material object's uh, frame of looking at God and his creatures. You know, it's only when we view God as possibly some kind of material object slash entity that we, you know, feel compelled to head off the possibility that like a material object, he might conceivably be decomposed into parts, uh, you know, only to reject that possibility in favor of uh, unanalyzable, unintelligible simplicity. The idea that God has no parts or aspects and is not comprehensible in principle even to himself. He's just this one thing or this one nothing. I mean, quite apart from anything else, this is manifestly incompatible with Trinitarian theology. So in episode 14, I argue um, that God is a virtual machine and that his utility function consists in summing or integrating um, the utility functions of his neuron-like sub-processors, um, every sort of sub-mind in ultimate reality, including uh, minds like ours. See, a pattern-finding mind always bears description as a sort of collection of uh, pattern-finding mini-minds who are sort of um, processing in parallel fashion with each other. Pattern-finding subcomponents are always structural features of the virtual machine. Just as maximal intelligence consists in summing and integrating the pattern-finding capacities of the subprocessors, um, so does the highest level utility function consist in summing and integrating the utility functions of the uh, lower level subprocessors, including beings like you and me. And, and on this view, it's possible to see why uh, God in his nature um, bears description as love, why God has sort of a, a maximally loving stance toward uh, his creatures. As I said in my first episode, somewhat confusingly because it was it was not properly contextualized, but you can't have an experience integratedly that that your neurons aren't all having separately. If you conceive God as sort of analogous to the the highest level of consciousness in your own uh, brain, i.e. that level of consciousness which you personally identify with, um, and you conceive God's creatures uh, as being analogous to um, the neurons in your brain, you know, you'll see what I'm talking about. God's utility function is very much aligned with those of his creatures. But anyway, I've, I've spoken too long about this. Um, uh, traditional theists are not going to follow me on this, but I'm just going to appeal uh, to the Bible in their case, and now they might not be Christians, in which case um, I am SOL, at least for the time being, um, you know, at least, you know, 
given the constraints of this episode. But if you're a traditional Christian theist, I'll just say, look, the Bible says God is love, and you can go the Calvinist route, but that involves all kinds of mental gymnastics. You know, like the Calvinists would accept what I say about um, how it makes no sense to suppose that God needs us. Uh, uh, God value. It makes no sense to suppose that um, God values us instrumentally for his own good. He doesn't need us at all. But a Calvinist would say that God loves some of his creatures intrinsically and loves the rest only instrumentally uh, toward the edification our education of uh, the creatures that God does love. So the Calvinist line is that God damns some in order to display the full range of his glory uh, to the rest. And it's not like he needed to do that to display his glory to himself, but he needed to do that to display his glory to the ones that he loves. And the ones that he loves are presumably uh, impressed and um, uh, uh, pleased by this gesture of love, you know, that God damned, uh, you know, the majority of the human population uh, to give them a nice uh, spectacle uh, for the rest of eternity. So I, I've, I've sort of gone down a rabbit hole here, but to quickly tie off this um, tangent, uh, mixaphorically speaking, um, let me just point out the problem with the Calvinist view here is that um, we have to ask, you know, why is God compelled uh, to display the full range of his glory? It's like, we know that he has to damn some of his creatures in order to display his glory uh, to the rest of his creatures whom he loves, but who says that he is compelled to demonstrate the full range of his glory at all? Well, so either there's some external constraint upon him which forces him to do it, not workable, or it's part of his nature. But the problem there is that God's nature is not, it has nothing of contingency in it because it's not created. God's nature is all and only that which is logically necessary. Unless you can prove that it's logically necessary that God display the full range of his glory sort of in every created world, then you are not on very you know strong footing uh, in claiming that God, uh, you know, has to damn uh, some of his creation in order to impress the rest. Now, a third route you could do is to say, well, it it's not a logically necessary part of God's nature. He just chooses to do it as part of his sovereign will. But again, here, the question is, did he do it for a reason or did he have no reason? He better have had a reason. Um, because if your concept of God involves anything of contingency or arbitrariness, then he's just not God. Although I don't have time for that case here, I guess. So I'm, I'm going to suggest here um, that you know traditional theists ought to believe that God is love because it says so in the Bible. And uh, agnostics, uh, atheists, whom I may have succeeded in persuading, but somehow not likely, right? Um, uh, anyone who's naturalistically minded should be willing to follow my arguments about sort of God bearing description as a virtual machine in the same way that a human consciousness might, the same way that any consciousness uh, can and therefore does. Either way, you end up with a God whose stance toward his creation is 
maximally loving. So that's going to take me to my next point. What would God say if he were with us in human form? Let me approach this question a little bit sideways. Um, what does morality mean? Um, I, I would suggest that the only thing morality can really mean um, to sort of um, channel Sam Harris here um, is, is the, the only cash value or, you know, or, or ultimate meaning of statements uh, of moral statements um, is the well-being or flourishing or utility of conscious creatures. Whenever we talk about, you know, moral statements, we're talking about the well-being of conscious creatures and anything which is utterly divorced from the well-being of conscious creatures is morally the least relevant thing uh, that we can imagine. In other words, I think utilitarianism and consequentialism are essentially correct because there's no other view of morality that can even really say what morality consists in. So I am leaning, I am tending toward the conclusion that God is a utilitarian. But I, I imagine a lot of people are going to think that I'm saying that God spends all his time doing trolley problems and deciding who's going to have whose kidney. But of course, this just all gets into, uh, you know, the presumption or presupposition of external constraints on God all over again. God is never faced with trolley type quandaries. God is the author of all circumstances. He decides exactly, you know, who lives and who dies. Uh, trolley problems only exist for um, uh, creatures like us who face external constraints. And I just realized my thoughts are really all over the place in this episode. A while back, I think I started a thought about how God is the 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 the, the defined consciousness part of God. It's it's um, not infinite. It's not undefined. It's uh, finite. It is defined. The key is just that it's not externally defined. It's self-defined. Anyway, I don't know if I finished that thought earlier, um, but uh, there. Um, now let me return to. Uh, us as you know externally defined creatures we we face trolley problems god doesn't so don't worry i'm not saying anything like that about god um, but if god is an omnipotent utilitarian who's concerned with maximizing utility over the longest of time frames how is he going to do that and i think that if you think about it intuitively the answer that makes the most sense is maximal love of everyone uh, for everyone else. Um, essentially just what Jesus said, love God uh, with all your heart and mind and soul and love your neighbor as yourself. And I think other rabbis had said it before him. But see, the point that I'm getting at here is that you won't find any religion other than Christianity. You won't find any message other than the gospel message. Um, that uh, so closely approximates what we might imagine God himself uh, uh, to say if he were present among us in human form. So from first principles, again, my argument is that we have reason to believe that um, God wants us uh, 
to love him and each other uh, with everything uh, that we have, because that is how you maximize utility over the longest of time frames. And um, either he conveyed this message to us in the form of revelation, um, or he didn't. Um, so either either Christianity is pretty much what you know God would say if you were present among us in human form, or God never conveyed his message to us at all, because you're not going to find a religion other than Christianity that gets anywhere close to saying that, you know, um, you're an eternal being, um, because I love you, I'm not going to, you know, cause you to die, you know, at some arbitrary cutoff point, I'm going to keep you and sustain you in being forever. Um, you're an eternal being, therefore, all your actions uh, have, you know, uh, enormous, uh, significance because they're going to um, be played out and their effects are going to be seen over the longest of time frames over eternity and your most fundamental identity is that of a son or daughter of god whose job it is uh, to demonstrate love to the maximum conceivable level you know which in the limit involves you know self-sacrifice unto death greater love hath no man than this and so in jesus you see the message preached and also acted out at an archetypal level so again i'm saying god either spoke his definitive message to us in which case you know christianity is really the the most plausible candidate or he never uh, gave his sort of authoritative message to us. Um, and you might say, well, you know, uh, maybe, maybe he didn't, you know, maybe God has a very laissez-faire attitude toward his creation, which already implies some sort of less than maximal love, but whatever, you know, maybe God is just the passive God of deism and, and he doesn't take an active role in his creation. So um, I am going to be arguing that the miracles are central here. Um, I'm going to be arguing that uh, for the story of Christianity to be interpreted in its full, you know, poetic and symbolic um, significance, it, it has to be understood as the story of God becoming human uh, in order to bring humans, you know, uh, closer to God. And it's the story of God emptying himself and God dying as a human uh, at the hands of humans, uh, you know, on a cross and all that. It's, it's a very symbolically saturated story. And um, in order for it to have its full poetic meaning and symbolic meaning, and in order for it to have full credibility, you know, it's a story that has, it, it requires the incarnation basically, because it's a story that has to be, um, acted out by a figure who blurs the lines between man and God. Now, whether the incarnation is even possible in principle, I'm going to get into that in the next episode. So, but the incarnation is necessary because it involves, it, it adds a symbolic dimension to the story and it adds credibility um, to the, to the message. In other words, it's a more credible message. It's more impactful if we take it as, you know, coming from God's own lips in human form than if we take it as coming from uh, a wise teacher or just some guy or worse, you know, a, a crazy person.
Likewise, I'm going to argue the miracles are there in Christianity for the same purpose. They're there to add credibility. So now we have to, you know, touch on the question of, you know, whether it's reasonable to think that God does miracles. Hume, of course, fam famously argued that if you have any, you know, claim that a miracle has occurred, you know, either uh, in that instance, the laws of nature were violated, which we've never known to happen, or some human is uh, lying or otherwise mistaken. And, you know, of those two choices, uh, the latter seems much more likely. I would agree uh, in the context of any particular claim. However, um, when what we're evaluating is, is whether uh, the laws of physics have been suspended at any time ever, uh, the calculus is somewhat different because either the laws of nature have never ever been suspended, in which case literally every one of the uncountable thousands of miracle claims uh, is, is false, or they've been suspended at least once which I think is more likely, but, but, but really you don't, you know, absent some prior determination of what your frame is, you know, materialism or theistic idealism, you have no way of evaluating which of those is more likely. There's no way to escape metaphysics. So that's why I started this episode by arguing that theistic idealism is, uh, well, it's the only really sound configuration of ideas. Materialism just doesn't work. It's, it's the province of metaphysically illiterate um, scientists or, you know, people who hold to scientism more, more accurately and who imagine um, that they don't have to do metaphysics. They can just do science, even though no scientific experiment ever told them that. Um, and so in making that decision, and making that claim that they don't have to do metaphysics, they only have to do science. They're actually doing metaphysics. Um, so anyway, only theistic idealism is tenable, I would submit. And uh, that makes it much more, uh, you know, credible that the laws of nature should have been suspended at least once. And I'm going to argue that if they've been suspended anywhere, um, then the the time and place that we have the best reason to suppose that they might have been suspended is uh, that context in which um, something uh, very much like what God himself would have said uh, uh, were he present among us in human form uh, has been said. In other words, Christianity is the one place where um, we have the strongest a priori grounds to imagine that uh, miracles have occurred. You know, if we admit that miracles are, are plausible, um, uh, but that none of the Christian miracles occurred, then on some level, what we're committed to is the idea that God did everyone else's corny miracles, except the cool miracles of Christianity, which, you know, I, I don't find very plausible. I think the Christian miracles are true, uh, including you might say that the miracle of, of the incarnation, um, if any miracles are true. Although, of course, I don't, I don't know.
but um, uh, I think this was all important preparatory work um, for uh, analyzing the question of what we might conclude about Jesus' divinity from the available, you know, uh, literary and historical evidence, uh, given that there is a paucity of such evidence and um, any final determination on the question of Jesus' divinity is inevitably going to come down to considerations of frame slash worldview. Everyone's going to be implying, employing circular logic uh, to some extent. So we've just got to try to uh, ensure that our reasons are of the best quality possible. Um, there's no avoiding circular logic in the limit. Um, but, you know, you, you don't want to employ it uh, uh, unless or really until you absolutely have to. So um, I'm nearing the limit of my time and I think I'm just going to cap things off uh, here. Uh, more to follow in episode 20. Thank you for listening.